Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, everybody. I'm Sess Busby, editor of Flying Solo. Welcome to our weekly podcast where we step inside the minds and lives of soloists and small business owners. Now, ever since the pandemic, meaningful work has become a hot topic of conversation as more and more of us look to live a life where work and purpose align. And today's guest knows this better than most. Nina Maxon-Bone is the Managing Director of Beaumont People, and she spent the last couple of decades helping individuals find their unique path to career fulfillment. She's also the author of the new book, Meaningful Work, which shares the inspirational stories of how others have applied the theory into their career and working lives. She joins us today to give us the lowdown on meaningful work and how you can apply it to your business, the recruitment process, culture and life. Hi, Nina. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Excellent. I'm glad you are. Always like an excited guest. (laughs) So um, could you tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a career expert? Were you always interested in people and culture? Yeah, I was always interested in people, but I didn't think of recruitment as a career for quite some time. Um, When I was younger, I wanted to be a teacher for a long part of my uh, youth. And even through into my 20s, I always thought I might go back to university to study teaching but I couldn't afford to do it once I did my initial degree and then life took over and I kind of found my interest in people and helping develop other people through career and people and recruitment world. So what was the the first foray then for you into that arena? When I first when I was working at university I actually did a a, believe it or not a door-to-door commission-only sales job in America and I used to spend my summer holidays in America doing that but through the year we would do a recruiting of other students across the universities. I grew up in England, as you can probably tell from the accent. And we would spend the year traveling around the universities, recruiting other students to come and join us. And I didn't realize at the time, but that was like doing a graduate recruitment job. Nine months of the year, we'd be recruiting. And then three months of the year, we'd go to America to, to run this sales program. So it was great training and a great experience. And it was that experience that led me to have an interest into that sort of talent attraction space. Mm. And so when did you decide to go out on your own and make that make this your career? Well, it was I won't lie, it was when I came to Australia in 2002. Whilst I had an interest when I was in the UK, it came together with the need for a visa, I won't lie. And uh, and it is a role that at the time you could get a visa for. So I knew I had the right skills. I had the interest and I wanted the visa. So I started my sort of official career. Uh, when I moved to Australia as a as a recruitment consultant, my initial job was recruiting temporary workers into the New South Wales government. <laughs> so that's like 20 years or so now. Yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> a bit more. <laughs> yes, scary. <laughs> so I imagine you've gathered a lot of expertise over that time. What What made you decide to put all of that expertise into a book? Like, why were you inspired to write Meaningful Work? It's interesting through my career in recruitment. I mean, I've interviewed, I think I worked out something like nearly 10,000 people in total over the, the span of my career. And I see time and time again that people are 
often they often know that they're unhappy, but they don't know why they're unhappy. Um, and I kind of we feel that frustration when we're interviewing people. They feel it. They're not sure. And sometimes we see people making the mistake of jumping from job to job and still not sort of solving what it is that's unhappy for them. So we did some uh, at Beaumont People, we did some research back in 29 into what actually is meaningful work, because we talk about trying to create opportunities for meaningful work. And we were astounded to discover that the research had never been done at all in Australia for Australians. And there had never been any research into what we call the integrated approach that looks at both the psychological and the sociological factors of meaningful work. So we did that research. And off the back of that, I was just so fascinated by what we found that we really continued the journey. And that's kind of what inspired me then to write the book to try and get the message out there to help everyone find more meaningful work. So what exactly do you mean when you talk about meaningful work? (laughs) So meaningful work is the importance an individual places on their work, meeting their personal beliefs, their values, their goals, their motivations in the context of the social and cultural environment. And often we think about it either for ourselves individually, we think of it as, you know, what am I good at? What do I enjoy? But we forget that actually how much the society and the culture we're in, how much value they assign to the work we do, and also our access and means to be able to do the kind of work we want to do, that also influences how meaningful work is for us. So it's a combination of actually four factors that we boiled it down to, to really help you understand what makes work meaningful. Mm. And do you think that's really changed over the years? Do you think um, what someone might have thought of as a meaningful work? And I, I guess, you know, there was that whole notion of a job for life, and I don't think we see that these days. So is that also because of, of the way people consider meaningful work and purpose in their in their roles? Yeah, I can see that it, so I can give you the data from how it changed through the pandemic specifically, and we definitely saw a shift from that because from the research we did in 2019, the top factors of meaningful work, the first one was actually the most popular, was having the trust of your manager, um, followed by work that has a higher purpose that contributes to society, followed by um, culture. And that shifted as a result of the pandemic, the number one factor after the pandemic as a result of probably the pandemic was that was the safety piece that emotional psychological physical safety became the most important factor for people maybe not surprising given what we all went through um, and number two was more about team connection rather than contribution more generally number three was still culture so it's definitely we saw that shift but the other thing I think is we're seeing and I, this bore out in the research I did for the book we're seeing a shift generationally in what people want in meaningful work. So what Gen Z want for work is very different to what the boomers want. And we're about to approach, I think it's 4 million boomers leaving the workforce in the next five to 10 years. So the nature of what people want from work is fundamentally shifting. Mm. So what are some of those differences that you saw? So I think the key thing is that the for the for the generation Z, they are going to be or they are obsessed with meaningful work. I'm, I'm Gen X and we talk about Um, Gen X is being obsessed with body image. That's something that we kind of have to deal with. Um, But Generation Z coming through, this comes from a demographer called Simon Christemacher, and he talks about them being obsessed with meaningful work in the way that it will drive everything they do. Um, And they won't settle for work that is not meaningful to them. They will vote with their feet if they're not engaged in meaningful work. And the difference is when you look at the boomer generations, uh, the kind of attitude then was very much 
you know work is something you do you're lucky if you like it but if you don't like it you kind of you don't really have much choice in the matter there is a lot more emphasis now on talent attraction and talent retention and because the there is going to be an ongoing talent shortage um, there might be economic fluctuations that will kind of change that sort of within shorter cycles but the next five to ten years particularly in Australia we're going to see a really um, key talent shortage in in the key areas so people have choice they do if they're if they're skilled and they're qualified and they're capable they have the choice around what they want to do and so they will vote them with their feet and it will be things like collaboration connection career pathways the ability to contribute to something bigger than themselves they're the factors we're seeing come through as really popular factors of meaningful work so a lot of our listeners are obviously soloists and small business owners. How can they adopt that idea of meaningful work into their businesses? You know, how do they move their careers and businesses in a meaningful direction? So I think the key thing for them is to understand what the factors are for themselves, because if they are engaged in meaningful work, even even in a solo venture, they will be more successful. It's shown that when you're engaged in meaningful work, you are Uh, You have higher performance, you have less burnout, less stress, greater engagement, greater creativity. So it will help with their ventures if they are engaged. And there's four factors that they need to think about. One is the individual, which is how their work and whatever their venture is, how that aligns to their strengths, to their motivations, to the personal narrative, the story they tell themselves about work. The second is the job, is how have they actually designed the job themselves to really try and make it meaningful, the volume of work, the pressure involved, the kind of day-to-day of what they're actually doing. The third, which when you're a soloist is kind of the same thing, is the organisation, things like practices, procedures, leadership, culture. But, you know, it's important that they set that up from the beginning because as they grow and they might bring bring on people to join them, that will fundamentally kind of be something they're laying the foundations for. And then the fourth is how much, as I touched on earlier, how much the society and the culture influences how they feel about their work and whether they're kind of in line with that or if they're not, whether they've made peace with the fact that there might be outside influences sort of judging or or contradicting their individual values. Mm. Interesting. And what about if, um, you know, their micro business, how can they make sure that they're providing meaningful work for their staff? Is it a lot about that culture piece? Well, so the the thing that's actually really important for people to remember is that it is unique for every individual. So for some people, it is culture, but others, it doesn't matter so much. And so the the key is uh, for very small businesses and the great advantage of being in a a micro business is you can have this conversation. You're not having to kind of make generic, um, you know, systems and processes that suit the vast majority. You can try and tailor it more individually to to the number of staff you have. So the best thing you can do is actually ask people. Now, some people may not know for themselves, as I say, they struggle to articulate what it is. We actually built a a profile tool to help people measure it for themselves, which we've made free and available for anyone to use so they can go on and and measure themselves against the the researched metrics of Meaningful Work. That's just at meaningfulwork.com.au. So that kind of tool can help people see what's important to them and maybe use that for a discussion uh, internally. But if you understand what makes the work meaningful for your you know let's say you've only got two or three people is it the leadership is it the relationships is it the systems is it your job is it actually just that you get to work to your strengths and you're not worried about the rest of it what is important to them each individually and can you try and tailor and reorganize the work accordingly so they get to do it in the way that's meaningful for them Mm. so when you were writing the book did you face any kind of challenges when you were putting it all together 
I think the thing that was interesting was, so there are six uh, stories in the book, six quite different people, um, all of whom have had very successful careers, but quite different pathways. And what was interesting was talking to them and trying to understand how their journeys have kind of matched the theory. And one of the things that was interesting, and I guess it's one of the challenges that we face, and I saw it through the book, is that meaningful work changes over time. And sometimes we don't realise when it has changed and interestingly enough even as I was writing the book I experienced that myself because in terms of my enjoyment and my engagement in writing the book you know one of the challenges is around kind of like any project as you go through it you know it's exciting at the beginning and then you're kind of in the in the weeds of it and then you're coming out the other end so trying to keep that level of engagement and meaning as you're going through anything and we saw that consistently in, in each of the the stories in the book so that's quite an interesting observation was almost to see the theory in myself while I was writing about it for other people so that's quite a uh, interesting and challenging thing to kind of go through. Did anything surprise you from the stories that people were telling you? Yeah there were a couple of um, key things that jumped out at me um, one of the people in the book Mimi Naylor she's the founder and clinical director of a, a private speech pathology business and one of the things that fascinated me about her story was that she had, um, she's neurodiverse, she has ADHD, um, and she's very proud of that fact. She talks about that very openly, but she's worked in large hospital systems, university systems, and she then went out on her own and has her own private um, sort of speech pathology business. But one of the things that fascinated me in her story that really surprised me, you kind of assume that you only go out um, on your own if you have that kind of financial security to do so. She's actually uh, the daughter of refugees and she comes from a, a refugee background. So really hearing how she got through that and set up on her own, that was just a blew me away in terms of the things that drive her. I won't give too much away, but the things that kept her going when it was tough for her. Mm. And you said there was a couple. Who was the other person? Yeah, so the other one um, that's really interesting is Hamish Young. So he's a director at the United Nations and um, has had a phenomenal career. If you saw his you know, profile and you could go on and look him up, um, you would just you'd be blown away by the things he's achieved. But he failed high school. He came in the bottom 5% of his year in high school. And the story of how he um went first into a kind of job that was suited him in terms of the organization it suited his uh, hobbies it was in a company aligned to some of his hobbies I don't want to give too much away but how he then went that's great but he couldn't see himself doing that for the next 20-30 years that's what motivated him to go back to TAFE and retake his HSC and then go on to do a double degree and he ended up finishing in the top 10 percent of his year at university and that kind of story of how he went through that shift and then ended up in the career that he ultimately ultimately landed in it's a really great example of when things work and then don't work and work and don't work it is interesting as well that quite often academic experience doesn't necessarily equate to the job experience that you're expecting yeah and it's interesting you say that because actually one of the other people in the book um, Pamela Bishop, she's the chief operating officer of Blooms the Chemist. I'm sure everybody has heard of Blooms the Chemist. And she passed up the opportunity to go to university when she was young, 17 or whatever she was, because she was working part time in a, in a chemist in she's from Ireland originally in a pharmacy back in Ireland. And she loved it. She loved the retail work. She loved the interaction. And she decided she didn't want to go away and study. And so she's ended up having this incredibly successful career 
based on what was actually really important to her individually. And she's only ever worked for two organisations, the, the company in Ireland and then Blooms the Chemist when she came here. So a great example of the fact that it's not, you know, you don't necessarily need the degree to do to go on to have a great career. So what are your thoughts on the importance of, of making meaningful work an absolute priority in our lives? Do we all need to do that? Yes. I mean, I'm obviously very passionate about this, uh, but I believe that it is the fundamental thing that will make you um, make a significant difference in your life. One of the things we discovered in the research was that meaning that work, sorry, not just meaningful work, but work itself has a much bigger impact on us than in previous generations. It's where traditional sources of meaning have been in decline, things like um, church attendance, things like community centres, you know, knowing your neighbours, those kind of things. Work has actually become our primary source of identity and meaning. And we that's borne out through the research. And most of us spend more time at work than doing anything else. And what we know is the outcomes from being engaged in meaningful work improve absolutely every metric going. Even, even on an organisational level, it improves your organisational performance during times of downturn or downsizing, for example. But individually, you will be less stressed, you'll have less burnout, you'll be happier, you'll be more engaged. And I believe that has a massive ripple effect to your friends, to your family and you know, to the economy. You're less likely to leave jobs as often if you are a a solo venturist or if you're a micro business you're more likely to be successful but the trick is understanding how it's meaningful to you because it is unique for every individual and if you're not in meaningful work the thing is about taking the time to learn the lessons from from that so instead of sort of rushing and hopping from one thing to the next why is it not working what is it about it that's not working there's some great questions and exercises I put in the book to really get people thinking about those things because when we're not in meaningful work that can actually be as instructive as when we are if we choose to listen to the lessons that it's giving us. How can we measure the meaningfulness of our work because it's a very sort of esoteric thing in some ways. (laughs) Well that's why we built the the profile tool so the meaningful work profile tool it looks like a wheel if you like it's like a coloured wheel and it takes the so there are the four factors uh, that I mentioned earlier, and there's subsets within those fact- factors. And what it does is it builds it's built behavioral based statements against the research um, to help you measure where you sit in terms of which one of those subsets within the factors are more important to you. And by doing that, you can see for yourself which aspects are really kind of the most important. And they're all lovely, don't get me wrong. I mean, every factor of meaningful work is nice. We'd all, you know, in an ideal world, in utopia, we'd have every factor of meaningful work all of the time. But the trick is understanding the ones that are important to you and just turning the dial on those ones, not spending too much time on the ones that aren't. And a great example, um, I talk about this in the book, is relationships. So relationships is one of the subsets of the organisational factor. There's a lot of evidence that says if we have a best friend at work or close friends at work, that really helps us be engaged in meaningful work. But for me as an individual, at this point in my life, it's not so important. It was very important when I was younger, but it's not so important now because I struggle with all the responsibilities I have to stay in touch with the people that I'm already really close friends with. And I don't, you know, I don't want the extra kind of responsibility of having to try and keep up with more people because I don't want to let people down. So just because it's a common and popular factor of meaningful work doesn't mean it's true for everybody. So it's kind of not falling into the trap of popularity and really taking the time to use that tool to measure it for yourself or understand it for yourself so that you can tailor what you're trying to do to you as an individual. 
So what about for our small business owners? You know, what kind of challenges could they expect if they're trying to offer more meaningful work? I mean, you said there's advantages because, you know, they're smaller teams, there's more of that face-to-face relationship. They can ask questions about, you know, what people find meaningful, but what might be some things that might be challenging for them when they're trying to offer more meaningful work? Yeah, there's a couple of big ones. Um, So one of the factors that increased significantly as a result of the pandemic was the desire for career growth and progression. And, you know, understandably, in a a much smaller organisation or a micro organisation, you don't necessarily have those career pathways on offer um, unless you're growing kind of at a speed that somebody wants to grow their career. And the the generation uh, that are coming through, the generation Y, the generation Z, they expect very clear career pathways and they expect to know what can they do to get the next promotion what does it entail where does it look like and that's not necessarily something you know that that the listeners can apply in in a small organization so there's two ways they could tackle that they could either accept it and say fair enough I will just make sure I'm trying not to appeal to those types of people because everyone's path to meaningful work is unique let me instead realize what I can do and try and talk to a different audience The other way is to say, okay, well, I may not be able to offer structured career pathways, but I can give them learning opportunities and development opportunities and involve them in projects that they may not get involved in in a larger organisation, which will give them more skills and experience. And what about AI? There's so many people that with the advent of AI are feeling very threatened about their job security. But is AI something that can also help businesses provide more meaningful work? Yeah, it's actually, so it's like anything. I see it as a tool and a tool used well and for good can do great things, but obviously often tools can, you know, use, be used for nefarious purposes too. So it's about oh, how you... Nefarious purposes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the word of the day. <laughs> um, but, you know, so it's about how you use a tool. But I think one of the great things it can do is it can... Um, take some of the kind of bulk of the kind of repetitive data-based, you know, where AI is at, particularly at the moment, and this may change over time, but it can do large processing, it can look at repetitive tasks, there are certain things it could do that may not be so meaningful for your people. And one of the things that we know is uh, won't change is the need for human skills. In By 2030, Deloitte tell us that two-thirds of Jobs will be soft skill intensive. So if you can get your people building those soft skills, things like their collaboration, their creativity, their critical thinking, and actually get AI, almost use it as an intern to do the kind of bulk of the kind of repetitive tasks for you. It means that you can free your people up to do the stuff that they're going to enjoy more. Mm. And so how would you encourage those soft skills in your staff? What are some things that you could do to help develop those soft skills? So I think this is where you look at the, and this ties into the job factor, you look at what what are you asking your people to do and what are their individual strengths and how can you try and give them work and tailor the job to allow them to use those strengths to learn some of those skills. And I'll give you an example. We had um, two marketing coordinators that we hired, graduates that joined us, well, actually they were near graduates. And when they joined us at Beaumont People, uh, we have two main cohorts that we market to. One is to clients and one is to candidates. So, you know, people that are looking to hire and people that are looking for a job. And we set their jobs up that way so that one would focus on each cohort. But what we realized over time was they had different strengths. 
and they weren't enjoying the work set up like that. So we kind of sat them down together and we said, OK, this is the out this is what we need done. This is the output we need. What do you like doing? What are your skills? What do you need want to develop? And off the back of that, we completely rejigged the role. So one does all of the kind of social media online stuff. One does all of the events in person stuff. And what that means is for the so the person that's focusing on the social media side, they get to do more of the analysis, the critical thinking, some of those soft skills that they really enjoy. And for the other person, they get to do more of the collaboration and creativity, also soft skills, but they get to hone and develop the ones that are, they already like and enjoy and get to get really good at them. Without that experience, they don't have the practice to get better and better at them. Hmm. And so, again, it came down to those conversations as well and really listening to the people that you're working with. Yeah, we I mean, we we had the strengths profile. So we had the meaningful work profile we looked at. And then we also use a strengths profile, which is a formal um, tool that looks at their strengths. But again, that can be done by discussion as well. The strengths profile is not our product and it, it does cost money. So obviously, if you're in a micro business, you don't necessarily have a lot of money for these things when you're in startup phase and those kind of things. But you can also do that by discussion. You know, somebody's strength is and it's one of the individual factors or tied to the individual factors of meaningful work. But it's what they're good at. What do they enjoy? When are they in the flow? And what you're looking for is what are the human skills that can't be done by AI that show that strength? So it is things like what we're doing now, narrator, you know, chatting, talking, collaborating, building relationships. That's a very human strength. But it's also, as I mentioned earlier, critical thinking, analysis, some of those things. So it's really taking the time to get to know and understand what you can draw out of your people and, and get them to spend more time doing. What are some questions you think could help you uncover those skills if you're, because as you said, uh, to use those tools costs a business a lot of money and they probably don't have the budget for it. So what kind of questions should they be asking their staff? So I would start by saying, um, what are the things that you do in work where you literally go, wow, where did the time go? When you get into a flow state and you didn't realise you know, you were loving so much that you were of what you were doing that you kind of almost didn't realize where the time had gone, because that will tell you what they're really passionate about. And once you understand and then, you you know, that might be an activity. So that might be I was designing website, let's say, OK, well, what is it about that activity? So that's the activity. What's the human skill behind that that you enjoyed? Is it the creativity or is it the actual kind of um, uh, like the, the Tetris game of fitting things together, which is a kind of a um, spatial awareness thing. You know, there might be a couple of different human skills at play there, but which bits of it do you really enjoy? What did it? Re what was it about that activity that really got you going? Then let's look at that human skill and see what other tasks you can do where we can apply that human skill, because you can apply that creativity or that spatial awareness to other aspects that need doing in the organisation for example, and then that's where you'll get the best out of your people. They'll perform better and they'll be more engaged. So they'll be happier and stay with you longer. Mm. Can't believe it, Nina, but we're almost out of time. So clearly this <laughs> is something I like doing. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> now, um, I guess a final question, what tips would you have for our listeners about um, making a transition into meaningful work? If they, you know, if they're not they're not that happy with what they're doing at the moment. How can they make that change? Yeah, my first tip is don't rush it. So I always say it's like a, a health or a habit or a journey. It's not an outcome. So meaningful work is not a fixed date. It's not a destination. So don't 
don't sort of run away from something spend the time to try and understand what is it that's not working right now what is it you don't like don't just assume it's the job or the organization really go deeper than that to understand what are the things that really make you tick and make you happy um, and as I say there's some tools and exercises in the book or you know there's the free tool online that you can use as well but spend the time to think about that so that you don't just jump from one thing to the next because getting it right and having good questions to ask yourself and then to ask if you're going for an interview or where you currently work or of yourself in your own work even the right questions are what will form the right habits and the right habits will help you improve your journey to meaningful work thank you so much nina great advice now where can people get the book and um, pretty much anywhere they want online so uh, or in bookshops so it's an, it's in, you know in kindle on amazon it's on booktopia it's in dimux um, my website which is just ninamapsandbone.com.au has all of the uh, all of the links it's on audiobook kindle real book so yes yeah, it should be everywhere <laughs> everywhere you won't be able to avoid it <laughs> <laughs> that's my hope Seth. <laughs> thank you so much for your time i really enjoyed chatting with you today thanks for having me